Welcome to Education Talks, I'm David Burke. Professor Sonia Blandford is one of the United Kingdom's leading experts on improving the education and aspirations of children from disadvantaged backgrounds. In 2015 and 2016, she was named in Debrett's list of the top 500 most influential people in the United Kingdom and in 2016 was among the Women of the Year. Sonia is the editor of the Teaching Times Every Child Journal, author of over 250 articles and books, and is currently Professor of Social Mobility at Plymouth Marjon University. Well, Professor Sonia Blanford, welcome to Education Talks. Thank you. Thank you. I'm uh, really pleased to be here. It is great to have you here. And um, where, whereabouts are you joining us from? I'm actually sat in my office at home, which is in a place called Newbury, West Berkshire, which is around 60 miles west of London as the one of our main motorways, M4, along the, that M4 corridor. And I noticed it's a bit uh, sunny outside. Nice to have a sunny day in the UK. Yeah, we've, we've, we've had a lot of sun this year, perhaps a little bit too much. Um, but we are in a very uh, different sort of stage in weather, aren't we, across the world? Uh, but it, particularly in uh, London and uh, parts of the southeast of England. So we've got yes, another sunny day today. It's um, yeah, it is upside down the world at the moment. Uh, my home country, of course, Australia, is going through a whole lot of uh, wet weather and floods. I think uh, for New South Wales and Sydney, it's been the the wettest um, year on record and we're already in October. Um, so, yeah, I'm here in Bangkok at the moment. Uh, it is great to uh, to have you here on the program. I want you to um, perhaps just take us right back to the beginning of your career because uh, you have a very extensive and you're an influential person in education. But I'd like you to take us back to where you began your work in, in schools and education. Well, I think it's probably... Uh relevant to this discussion for you to know and understand where I come from right back at the beginning of my 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 life and my my career um, as a student as a pupil and then as a teacher so just bear with me and I will tell you a little bit about my life story so I'm one of three children um, I'm actually a twin I have a twin sister um, who has taught but not in the way that I've been teaching and uh, we were in a family that, uh, unfortunately, my mother was illiterate. Uh, she didn't ever learn how to read or, or write. Um, she could just about write her name. Uh, and my father actually learned to read and write when he was in the army doing national service. And we lived in a in a place called Hounslow, well, actually Felton, which is part of the London borough of Hounslow. And we lived on an estate called the Allied Estate. And the Allied Estate uh, was made up of families that were, for whatever reason, disadvantaged. So the, the, the parents were not in employment or they'd been in prison. Mine, that wasn't the case with mine, but that certainly was the case that there was difficulties around employment. Uh, and therefore, the schools that we went to, um, particularly the, our primary school, secondary school, um, actually comprised of children that came from very disadvantaged backgrounds. In England, we have a, 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 a scale of, of um, where you are in society, A to G, and we were definitely firmly in the G group. Um, whilst we were at primary school, at the, so we went through an infant school and a junior school, and that was on the same site. Uh, and we were able to learn to read 
read and we were learned, we learned how to write. Uh, we didn't learn an awful lot more. Uh, so our education was quite limited. Uh, so culturally and socially, um, our life was made up really by joining um, brownies and guides. Uh, and that was fortunate that we had a very good unit within the school. So that was very much driven by the school. And we were very much supported by um, the musical talents of some of the teachers in the school. And my sister and I are both musicians. Well, she's a better musician than I am. But that's how we started our engagement with the recorder and singing and being able to perform. And that helped us also to learn how to learn. Secondary school, slightly more challenging. Went to uh, a secondary school that uh, comprised of very... Uh, disadvantaged people. I'd failed what was called the 11 plus, which was an exam taken when you were 11, which decided whether you went one, one part of the town to the grammar school or to another part of the town to what was the secondary modern, and then ultimately be, became a comprehensive school, which was supposed to take, by, by inference, comprehensive meant that it took every child from any background. Actually, it took the poorer children from the poor backgrounds in our particular town. So we were part of that school. Um, it was a girls' school and a boys' school, all on the same site, um, split down the middle. Girls and boys could not mix. And then suddenly we could mix. And the boys' school had a brass band. So having played the recorder, in fact, played a whole range of recorders at primary school, uh, my sister and I took up um, playing cornets in the brass band, which sounds a bit unusual in London, West London, to have played a brass instrument. But actually, that was down to a guy who was the technical drawing teacher in the boys' school. And he, Richard Scholar, he ran the, uh, the brass band and we joined the brass band. I'm not saying that we were any good, but we were good mm -hmm. enough. <laughs> we joined joined playing third cornet uh, among mainly boys, which was also at the time a bit of an attraction. Being being part of a, a, a group, having been uh, for some time in a, in a girls' only school, that comprehensive school went through many, many, many changes in those initial years. Um, part of it was the way in which it dealt with examinations. So there was uh, a, a number of examinations that we were able to take, which were called CSEs, which were below the, the normal practice for the country, which was uh, GCA, GCEs. Um, I then got selected for whatever reason. I got selected um, a group of 23 out of around 150 children in our year group to take um, some GCEs at the age of 16. At that age... I knew nothing about learning. I didn't do any homework at home. I didn't know, know anything about a library until I was 15. I didn't know anything about how you would answer a question. So surprise, surprise, I failed them all. And that resonated with a study that my sister and I were on the fringe of, which was called the Born to Fail study, which was a study that was taken up by um, a researchers, a statistical study, which looked at how people lived and how people learnt, um, and particularly from the type of background I came from, from birth through to age 15. So that started in 1958, finished in 1973. And what they decided was we were actually born to fail. So we were known as the born to fail children. And indeed I did. 
So I, I took exams at the age 16, but I then, I'd been working, my sister and I had both been working at, uh, in, in the local shops and also doing cleaning and doing all sorts since we were 12. And when I say working, I mean, we were actually salaried lo- working in order to help support the family financially. So it wasn't too difficult to stay on because we just carried on doing the same. We carried on working. We carried on um, putting spring bars in watch straps for Timex as, as additional time. That was our homework. That, that was the boxes we came home home to every evening to, to create uh, further funding for the family. But it's also uh, working in shops, cleaning, as I say, and uh, gardening and, and basically just keeping our head above water in terms of family finances. So I resat in my in my sixth form. I resat every single exam, time and time again. In fact, I did inve- eventually pass ten O levels, ordinary levels at GCE, um, which included English and maths. But it took me twenty two attempts, twenty two attempts to do that. So finally, something clicked in my head that I was able to actually learn. I knew what it what it meant. I knew what revision was. I knew what it was to study. I knew how to write a sentence. Um, I knew how to put together a paragraph and I knew how to put together uh, what was needed in order to pass those exams. I wanted to be a teacher. The reason I wanted to be a teacher was actually quite a negative. It was a deficit reason. It was because the only profession I I ever came across besides the medical profession, profession was teaching. So I became a teacher by going to a college which was actually for the arts in West Yorkshire. I'd never been out of London. This was apart from a couple of um, funded trips, but certainly not in England. I'd never been out of out of London. Um, so I ended up in, in near Leeds, uh, a place called Wakefield, uh, and then ultimately Leeds University. But whilst I was at Bretton Hall, Bretton Hall was a, a college that would have been put together to for creative uh, teaching creative uh, approaches to education by Alec Clegg. It was an amazing, amazing place. And I was supported by some fantastic tutors. Um, I still played the cornet or trumpet. Uh, there were nine trumpet players in my year group. I was by far the worst. I was the ninth. I wasn't failing, but I was still rock bottom. But actually, I ended up after three years I did the original certificate in education and ended up with a special commendation I was the only one in my year group to get a special commendation because I worked and worked and worked because one thing I did know about from a very young age was how you how you could work Mm -hmm. if you invested in work it actually did pay dividends whether it was through finances or in my case um, getting me into uh, a different set, set of circumstances from that which I'd been born into. Mm-hmm. I then started teaching in a place called Corsham in near Bath in uh, the West Country uh, in a county called Wiltshire. And the reason I went there was I mentioned before about going to the library aged 15. Well, that was the first time I'd entered into a library uh, I was a little bit scared, so I picked the first book that I could come that I came across, which was Emma by Jane Austen. And alphabetically, it was the one that was closest to me on the shelf. Quickly got my tickets and quickly went home and attempted to read it. And was aware at the age of 15 that there was this huge vocabulary, that there was all these words that were really quite exciting. 
And for some people, that might be quite dry to read a Jane Austen book. But for me, living in the world that I was living in, it was painting this fantastic picture of this place called Bath. So when I was in the September, I did a fourth year to do a degree, but I was in the September of my my final year of my undergraduate study. Um, I look, was looking for jobs uh, and I came across a, a job that was near to Bath. And I remembered, because I'd carried on reading anyway, uh, Jane Austen books, I remembered this lovely place. And actually it was, the, the more detailed description is found in a place in, in a book called Northanger Abbey. And Northanger Abbey was, was in, in my imagination, that was where I wanted to be, which was Bath. So I applied for the job. It was the first job I applied for, and I got it as a music teacher. And I'm still teaching in that community to this day, 42, 42 years later. So on wow. a Friday, every week, I teach uh, three groups in three different schools music. So I'm still teaching, I'm still running a charity that I started uh, back in uh, 1980. The same group, same group, the same, obviously, I'm now teaching the grandchildren of some of the children that I taught. Uh, but one of the things that motivated me was what Richard Scholar had done at the school I went to, which was create a brass band. It was already there before, long, long before my sister and myself went to that school. But I created a band. I went to Corsham School. I was a music teacher. I created a band. And it was absolutely amazing to get the response from those children. And some of the uh, committee members of the charity that I'm still running are some of those original players. So I created a band, taught way beyond what I'd been trained to teach, but I just went for it. Taught all the instruments, taught to A-level, taught and actually got people into Oxford. Me, from where my background, got, got students into Oxford. I'm still in contact with them. I think it's important for me to have covered all of that at the beginning of this uh, podcast. But equally important is what's happened since. So I started in teaching. Um, wasn't all 100% positive. Um, I was actually quite a difficult person to get on with. Um, I hadn't learned some of the, the, the uh, I probably still have, some people would say I'm still difficult to get on with. I hadn't learned some of the social skills um, and it was all, you know, some of the situations I found myself in were very, very new. And even to this day that happens, uh, I find myself in situations and I think I've never, never experienced this and I don't have um, that background you know, from birth to 18 or birth to 21, that gives you that grounding in some of the social and cultural niceties um, that exist um, across the globe. Anyway, I went to, went, got my first degree, started teaching, loved it, and then had the opportunity. Um, I applied for a, a, a master's. It was quite audacious, really, because I was really bad at writing, really bad at writing at that point. Went to Reading University, studied for a, a master's uh, and was again given an awful lot of support. And then from there did a second master's. It wasn't intended to be a second master's. I wanted to do a PhD, but I still couldn't write. And in fact, by that at that point, I, re, I, I met some very, very unhelpful educators who actually told me how bad I was in a very negative way. But that bit between my teeth, I carried on. Uh, and I studied at Bath University and 
was awarded a master's in philosophy and then phil from there i went to bristol can you imagine going to bristol university for those of you that are aware bristol university is one of the top universities in this country and has been so it's not quite oxford or cambridge but it's in the next layer so it's one of the top 10 universities in this country so i went to uh bristol university and i was in the first cohort to study the EdD, the Doctor of Education. It'd been brought over uh, by the lecturers, uh, by the professors to encourage those people who were good practitioners, and probably I'm not bad, so I was a, a reasonable practitioner, and, and to encourage practitioner and theoretical research to come together. So that's what I did. I went to Bristol University and I uh, I was working, I should say, all the way through all of this further study, I was still working, so I had to keep myself. So I I, um, I worked and I became uh, Dr. Sonia Blanford and from there moved into Oxford Brookes University as a senior lecturer, as, as, as and a senior lecturer and within five years I was a professor. Um, and within another year, I was a Dean of Education at Canterbury Christchurch University in Kent in the southeast, and then became a pro vice chancellor of the same university. From there, I set up uh, a charity called Achievement for All and spent 10 years really, I suppose, giving back in some ways. Uh, Achievement for All, the intention was to uh, focus on improving outcomes for all children, regardless of their background, their challenge, or their need. So that gives you a fleeting um, through 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 my uh, 64 years and my 42 years um, as a professional uh, teaching, but also what what grounded me, what where I started from. It's a lot to be proud of, and you're currently professor of social mobility at uh, Plymouth Marjon University. I wanted to ask you though, like what drives, what continues the drive, your passion for focusing on social mobility and inclusion? I think I need to define what social mobility means to me. It's not about getting into a different class group or getting into a social class group or, or having more money. Social mobility for me is actually having enough of an income to be able to support yourself and your family to be able to live in a house that is reasonably comfortable to be able to engage in society it is not about social climbing it's not about social mobility in the way that many many governments and particularly our own sees it as you get more exams you get a bigger house you get a better job it's not that it's actually the most fundamental what we need in life so what drives me is seeing those families and seeing those children who like me didn't have the best or don't currently do not have the best start in life and i have a word that i always focus on which is mutuality and within my research and within what i write i talk about mutuality which is valuing everybody regardless of their background, their challenge or need. So we should value everybody and social mobility should provide that value within society. And that's what drives me, is that mutuality. It's that understanding that although we come from different backgrounds, we've all got something to give and we've all got, we all need support and we all need to be part of society in the round, 
whether that's local, national, international, global, whatever it might be. Couldn't agree more. Um, you're currently working on a study. Uh, are we included? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, are we included? It started in Australia, in Monash University. Uh, Professor Yumesh Sharma has been studying inclusion for many generations, and he is probably not as long as I've been studying, but he uh, he's nonetheless a, 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 a world leader in uh, in inclusion. And we were invited to join his study uh, in looking at how you ask the question about inclusion. So looking at questionnaires for students, questionnaires for teachers and questionnaires for parents. So we took those and as if by magic, it was serendipity, we ended up uh, in where I'm currently based, which is at Plymouth, uh, Plymouth in the West Country and the city council uh, and the regional schools commissioner, which is the organization that governs schools within England, they invited myself and uh, actually a former PhD student of mine, Sue Ann Gibson, to come together and look at the inclusion strand of their current place-based project. So what we look at is what does it mean to be included? What does it mean to the student? What does it mean to the teacher? What does it mean to the leaders? What does it mean to the parents? And we've replicated uh, Professor uh, Chalmers' work here in England, and we're going to go on to a comparative study with the other work he's doing um, in England, not in, well, we're England, in uh, Germany, in uh, America and Canada, and also in parts of Asia, and of course in Australia. So our intention is to put together a program which helps everybody feel included in the school. And we're starting with a pilot of that next month with around 60 children aged between 12 and 16. And the aim is for them to have an understanding of where they are in school in terms of their own aspiration and how they access learning and in terms of how they can improve their attainment and ultimately achieve. So that's where we are in the current study. Um, I should also add, there's only two professors of social mobility in this uh, country, in England, uh, and we're both from the same town. We're both from, from oh. Felton. Um, I could say that the other one's from the other end of Felton, because it's true. Um, he's not from the Allied, but needless to say that Felton has had, our background has had an influence on both of us. Um, and they're unique in our roles within uh, within England. That's very interesting. Um, now, I understand you have a book that's about to be published as well. Is that right? Yeah. So um, having mentioned I couldn't write, I've actually overcompensated all the way through my uh, my academic life. So in 1995, when I joined uh, Oxford Brookes University, I was given the opportunity to write a, write a book on middle leadership. And as audacious as ever, I thought I could. Uh, and I'd not long uh, got my, obtained my doctorate from Bristol University. So I started writing. 54 books later, I've published 50, this is my 54th book. I've got a, a book coming out, uh, actually co-written with um, a, a former colleague from um, 
a government colleague, um, Stephen Berkey, and we're uh, publishing, the book is called Teaching and Learning to Unlock Social Mobility for Every Child. And that is available from Routledge from March next year. We're currently going through the editing um, Mm -hmm. stage of the book. Um, And this book actually is the combination of, of three books. So the first was Born to Fail, for those of you that see this the second one is social mobility chance or choice and both of these books uh build from my background to uh my profession that of teaching and the research that has involved uh a goodly number of uh practitioners and leaders in this country so teaching and learning to unlock social mobility for every child is published by Routledge and what it focuses on is um, evidence-based practice to improve outcomes for all involved in education. So for teachers to understand what it is to to be socially mobile, for the trainers post-16 to understand what it is to be socially mobile and to ensure that we can have teaching and learning that will actually improve social mobility. And a large part of that is inclusion. And that's including children or young people, whatever their background, challenge or need, and including them 100% of the time. 100% of children, 100% of the time. So we've got lots of case studies, lots of research of practice uh, by some very uh, eminent practitioners, from across England and some research which is uh, historical and current that will take you through, if you care to read the book, um, how to unlock social mobility for every child. Fantastic. And we'll include as much information in the description for those listening to this in the podcast and anyone watching on the YouTube channel. Um, Sonia, while I have you here, uh, there was something I wanted to uh, just touch on because we talked uh, in the past about modular learning, um, and this came out of discussions around, you know, attempts to handle virtual learning environments during the pandemic. Um, I I wondered if you think that is this something, an area that schools should perhaps still continue to explore because um, I know a lot of schools are keen to sort of, you know, try and get beyond the pandemic, but this is something which perhaps could be of value to continue exploring. Yeah, I I think modular learning, just to define it, it's literally just having the the, the timetable divided up into modules as opposed to just lessons. So you could have 45-minute lessons but taught in a block uh, of maybe five lessons a day where a whole day is given to a subject area or a a group of subjects that are related to each other. So humanities day, an arts day, uh, a a sports day, a science day, as opposed to the the normal practice in uh, the majority of schools is that you spend in secondary secondary provision, you spend half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour in one subject. Then you go to another subject, which may not be in any way related, then to another subject. The advantage of modular based learning is that you can have an intensive period of learning. You can have more of an integrated 
approach to subjects. So with the arts, my subject area, I was at one point in, in London, I was uh, at the head of expressive arts and you could have integrated activities uh, with music, art, dance, drama and, and, and art itself. And then looking at how that is examined, there is no reason why you, you couldn't have assessment which is more integrated, which actually the baccalaureate allows itself, lends itself to, uh, as opposed to those individual uh, now GCSEs um, that we have here in, in, in England. Um, the other thing about modular is it, it allows it to be project-based. So mm. it's project-based learning. So although you are learning still the rudimentary under, and having a rudimentary uh, understanding of the main concepts in a, in a subject, in a discipline, you're actually able to integrate in a way that's project-based, which when all said and done, when you go into the world of work, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. You project manage, you project lead, you project, uh, you're part of a project team, you integrate in that way. So if we're looking for students that will be employable in the future, then a modular curriculum allows you to teach in a way that's going to set them up for, for learning for life, as opposed to lots of individual slots and the individual slots in the timetable and individual subjects, which actually are quite disparate. It is something which, you know, through the pandemic, as people were handling, you know, how to uh, deal with online learning and perhaps reflecting on how much we do in schools is just what we just do without giving much thought to why we do it. Um, and I hope that some of that exploration can, can continue and hopefully people who are, are watching or listening may have some thoughts on that and might care to uh, share that with us in the comments. Um, now, Sonia, before we finish up, I want to ask you what uh, in your long career, what is your proudest achievements? I think the the proudest achieve, achievement is actually being a teacher. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's what I set out to do, and I still teach um, children aged between eight and uh, eight and twenty. Um, I still uh, engage in supervising research, but it's all about teaching. So understanding pedagogy, which is an ongoing. Uh, uh, aim of mine to, to actually understand what it is and the craft of teaching and how we teach um, and setting that within my own context uh, of social mobility and having that voice uh, so I'm, I'm very proud of being a teacher but I'm equally proud of being able to take what I've learnt as a teacher and having that voice and sharing it in a way that hopefully people have found uh, very useful Obviously, somewhere along along the way, um, it has been useful. Hence, the reason I'm on my fifty fourth book. But um, it, it's and I say that in a in a way that, that hopefully people are hearing it. Um, but it is uh, it is that that I'm I'm proud of. It's not the number of books. It's the fact that I'm still still have that voice. Mm -hmm. um, looking forward into the future, um, you're exploring some opportunities with the group that I'm doing some work with, EduSpark. Is there anything you'd like to sort of touch on there? Yeah, I think with EduSpark, Edu I mean, you've mentioned already about online learning and the way in which uh, education is progressing. And certainly the pandemic, it helped us to reflect on how we deliver. And look what we're doing now, we're recording a podcast. I would never have thought 
five years ago that I would be recording a podcast. But it becomes the norm, doesn't it? It becomes uh, how you access access learning, how you ex- access um, information. And EduSpark is the way it's setting up and the way it's progressing. It provides that opportunity for us to look at how we deliver and also the content of what we deliver. And if we're looking at uh, online learning, if we're looking at uh, the way in which we can use technology to help learning, not be driven by the technology, but to assist with learning for whatever age group, then I will learn by being part of EduSpark. I will add to, hopefully, uh, from my research, uh, the benefits of un- online learning. But it's it's important for me to have that opportunity to, to continue to be creative and to be innovative. And thank you, Edu- EduSpark, for inviting me. Well, that's great. And uh, in addition to finding you on EduSpark, how can people get in touch with you if they're watching, listening, they want to reach out to you? How can they do that? So I will give you my um, email at Marjon University. So it's um, S Blandford, B L A N D F O R D, at Marjon, M A R J O N, dot AC dot UK. Please do be in contact. If you have the opportunity to read any of the books, I'd be really grateful to have some feedback. And I'm really grateful to everybody for listening to me today and also to David for inviting me and then going so eloquently through the interview process. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you, Sonia. Looking forward to your book being published in March of next year. And I hope uh, this isn't the first time that you'll be on Education Talks. Thank you. 